So I know what you're thinking. We, we've been in this conversation the last couple of weeks about discipleship. Um, we do things in, in series here, and uh, I, I preach on a topic until you're sick of it, and then I change to a new topic and make you sick of it. So um, we've been looking at discipleship, and the reason we've been looking at discipleship is Jesus has, um, uh, when, when he first rose from the, from the grave on Easter, he called his disciples and said, meet me in, in uh, Galilee, and I'm going to give you instructions. And when they got there, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. And so we've been, we've been looking at what that looks like. What is a disciple? What do they do? How do you recognize one? How do you make disciples? And that's where we've been for the last several weeks. And then last week we began to look at some of the reasons people either don't become disciples or quit being disciples. So last week we saw that one of the reasons that people, um, quit being disciples is because they find that it's harder than they thought it was going to be, that there's something about it they don't like. And so last week we saw that there's a great question you can ask before you quit being a disciple, which is a quit for what? To, to look before you leap, to say, okay, I'm going to quit as soon as I find something better. And so that's kind of where we left things last week. But today we're going to look at a different objection, and it's really an objection that gets in front of the process. It keeps people from ever becoming disciples. Or maybe um, they think they're disciples, but they really aren't. And, and this, is a, this is a situation that helps us clarify really uh, which we are, whether we're disciples or not. And it comes from a story in the Bible about uh, the, what's called the rich young ruler. And that's actually uh, that's the, the phrase you often see, but it's not actually in the Bible. Uh, you have to put all three tellings of this story together to get that. In, um, in Mark's gospel, we find out he's rich. And then Matthew tells us he's young. In Luke's biography, we find out he's, he's a ruler. He's got some kind of a position of authority. So they put it all together, and they say he's the rich young ruler. And uh, in it, we find the thing that we can use to decide, are we in fact really going to trust Jesus as our, as our master, um, or are we trusting in ourselves in the story of the rich young ruler? And I said before that I know what you're thinking. Um, I know what you're thinking. I do. Um, not because I can read minds, but because I'm just like you. What we're thinking is, look, I'm not going to give away all my possessions. I'm thinking that, and so are you. And so what you're thinking is, I hope he's got some way that he can explain this all away so it doesn't mean what it clearly does mean. Now, there's a couple of exceptions. I know I know the uh, at least two exceptions. One of them is you say, well, it doesn't count for me because I'm not rich. You say, the rest of you, absolutely, you should give away your possessions because you're rich, but I'm not rich. You should look at my bank account. Well, let's talk about that. What does rich mean? You know, let's let's just think about rich. Uh, wh- what does it mean to be rich? There's a picture up here coming up. Yeah. So you've probably seen this before, the bell curve. Where do you put the rich yardstick? Where do you decide who is rich? You know, I think we can agree most people aren't rich. If rich means anything, then most people aren't, right? Otherwise, what's the point of being rich? So so maybe maybe 75% of people are not rich, and maybe 25% are rich. Would that be a good place to put that yardstick? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe that's too much, right? Maybe you, you can kind of see where I'm, the garden path I'm leading you down. Um, so you're saying, well, 75%'s too much. Let's make it, or, or not enough. Let's make it 90%. Let's set that yardstick at 90%. We'll say anybody who's in the top 10% is rich, and the rest of us are not, right? So we might say, well, let's make it 90%. Or maybe we'll even say it's 1%, that if you're in the 1%, then you're rich or super rich. Everybody else is just kind of normal, and Jesus isn't talking to you. Well, maybe that's the case. 
Um, so let's say let's say it's ten percent. Um, so let me give you some statistics. If you if you take all of your wealth, all of your assets, and subtract all of your debts, do you think you've got two thousand dollars left over? Do you think you got two thousand dollars? Because if you do, that already puts you on the upper half of the global wealth curve. Okay, so if you've got two thousand dollars to scrape together, you're already in the upper half. Okay, now um, some other statistics. Suppose instead you were able to put together sixty-one thousand dollars of net worth. Okay, so you you think about your bank account, and you think about you know all the different different assets you've got. You subtract the the, the loan that you you know credit card debt or whatever. If you got sixty-one thousand dollars left over, guess what? You're in the top ten percent globally, just like that. Now suppose it's worse than that. Suppose you've got a retirement account and you've got that house which you bought when it was a lot cheaper and now you know you've pretty well paid it off and you've got a lot of equity in it. If you can assemble $500,000 of net worth, you know, sell the snow machine, the whole deal, if you can put it all together and you get $510,000, you're a one percenter. And it may not feel like it, but you are rich. You are rich by global standards. You're in the top 1% if you can put together $500,000. And I will tell you, in America, three-quarters of Americans are in the top 10% globally. So the uh, median household, household wealth in this country, in other words, half the people in this country have over $45,000 in wealth, which means they're already pushing up against that 10% number. So a lot of you are rich, and so we need to ask the question, um, does this apply to us? Now, the other objection, the other objection some of you are coming up to is you're saying, well, look, it's Mother's Day. I'm not really into all this Jesus stuff. Um, I don't, I don't really know if I really buy it or whatever. I come because, you know, uh, it's Mother's Day and I was invited or whatever reason. And you're thinking, you know what? I don't really buy into the whole Jesus thing. Um, and, and the reason is because of you, you Christians, right? You know, from what I've seen, a lot of Christians are hypocrites. And what you Christians do is you go looking for Bible verses that you can beat people up with. And then you really apply those like crazy. But then when there's something like this that applies to you, you look for escape clauses and reasons why it shouldn't apply to you. And so if you're in that camp, well, hang on, because maybe there's something in here for you. Let me, let me, um, let me address this now. So, you know, I've told you I know what you're thinking, and I think that covers a lot of us. But... But maybe there's a few others. But I think that's that's the the bulk of us. And the question is, does Jesus mean what he says? Is there some way, you know, am I such a, a verbal prestidigitator that I can somehow talk Jesus out of meaning what he means? And, and I'm sorry, I can't. I will tell you, Jesus does not say in here that you have to give away all your possessions to get into heaven. And the reason he doesn't say that is because you're going to anyway. Okay. You know, you know how the saying goes, right? You can't take it with you. You know, you don't see hearses with luggage racks. No one shows up. No one shows up at the pearly gates with a suitcase. Um, we we are going to give up all of our possessions anyway. Jesus is not saying you have to give up all your possessions to get into heaven. What Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, or he's talking about eternal life. And in verse sixteen, I think he says, he says. Um, the, the young man talks to him and he says, uh, he says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? Now eternal life, as we've seen over and over again throughout the scriptures, eternal life is a technical word Jesus uses to mean the kind of life that we have in eternity. 
It's not simply longer, but it's better. It's a different type of life. And what Jesus has been announcing really since the beginning of his ministry is you don't have to wait until you die to have that kind of life. Um, sometimes you hear Christians talking about being born from above or being born again, having a new birth. That's where you get this, this new type of life, this better life. You also, we also see in here Jesus talks about the rich man entering the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And again, that's, that's not a place. That's not when I die, I'm going from here to there. He's not talking about a place you go to. He's talking about who's in charge. What is your relationship with God? Is God the king of some other people or is God your king? And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And what he says is that, um, that this, this one person in this story says, um, says, what do I have to do? And he gives him some advice. So, so let's go ahead and take a look at this scripture because what Jesus is saying is, uh, this is the biggest single obstacle that people will have between where they're at and where God would like them to be. The kind of blessings that God wants to provide them is their wealth. And the reason is because it is such a snare that people trust in their wealth rather than God. And so they can't receive the blessings from God because they are encumbered. They have this albatross of wealth around their neck. And because of all this wealth, they're unable to receive the blessings of God. So... If you've got the scriptures handy, we can, we can begin in verse 16. Uh, the rich young ruler, again, the, the, the man, we don't know yet who he's a rich young ruler, but someone came to him and said, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life, to have the kind of life you're talking about, Jesus? And Jesus says, there are two options. And he says, the first option is obedience. If you obey the commandments, he says, he says, there's, uh, he says, why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who is good, that's God. Um, if you wish to enter into life, um, if you wish to enter into life, not if you wish to die and go to heaven, if you wish to enter into life right now, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? Now that sounds to us like he's kind of trying to pick which ones, you know, uh, he's trying to push back a little bit. He's not actually, in, in, in that culture, in, in his religion, as a, as a good Jewish young man, he would have been taught there are 613 things he needed to do. Or 248 he needed to do, 365 he needed not to do. And so he's saying, well, come on, give me some help here, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, let's start with the basics. Let's start with the very basics. So what are they? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And then he throws in this one he quotes a lot. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the young man says, check, I have done all those things. He says, I've kept all these what do I still lack? And Jesus won't let him off the hook. Jesus says, well, if obedience is the route you're going to take, you have to do it perfectly. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, we were in uh, chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel, and he said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He says, if you want to do obedience perfectly, then what you have to do is you have to give up everything you've got. Go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And the young man goes away sad because he had many possessions. Now, what Jesus has done is Jesus has pointed out to him, you're not keeping the commandments as well as you think you are. You think you're obeying them perfectly, but you're not. And I will now prove it with the very first commandment, you shall have no gods before me. And he's saying your money has become a god for you because you're unwilling 
to let go of it in order to follow the guy you just said was a good teacher. So he's proven this, and the man goes away sad. And because he goes away, he doesn't hear the other, the other option. He's only heard option one, the option of obedience. And Jesus goes to his disciples. He says, truly, I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we say, well, how hard is that, Jesus? How hard will it be? And Jesus says, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And um, in case we haven't picked it up the first two times, notice he also says, truly, I tell you. That's when Jesus is kind of saying, pay pay attention, get out your pencil. So so Jesus is really saying, this is a, this is a true fact about the nature of the kingdom of God, is it's very hard for people to get in who are rich. And the disciples are shocked by this. And they say, well, who can be saved? And the reason is in that culture, they thought that rich, rich was good. Rich, rich helped you, uh, be, it showed that God was already blessing you, and it gave you the resources you needed to be, to, to do the things you might want to do to, to continue to, to access God's favor. So, they're saying, well, who can be saved? Now, uh, some of you I know have, have seen somewhere, there's this tradition that goes out that says, the camel uh, going through the eye of a needle, that there was a, there was a, a gate, in the wall of Jerusalem, and it was only about as big as a small man, but a camel could go through it if he got on his knees. And that sounds wonderful, and it's almost like it's in the Bible, except it's not. And in fact, the earliest record of that legend is from the ninth century. And that's the reason we know it's false, because Christians had 800 years to cook up a reason why they wouldn't have to pay attention to what Jesus said. And that was the best they could do. So they came up with this. Uh, there's no record from the first century of there ever being a gate in the walls of Jerusalem called the Eye of the, the Needle. So it's not true. If you see that, you can you know check it out on Snopes or whatever. It's not true. Um, that's just a falsehood. So Jesus is saying it's hard, and there's no way we can look at the Scriptures and say, well, he didn't mean it. And the reason is because it is hard. It is a snare. Now, let's talk about what Jesus does not say. Does Jesus say wealth is evil? No. Jesus does not say wealth is evil. Jesus says wealth is tricky. He says that like fire or electricity, it's, it's, it's great that we have it. It does all kinds of things. It makes our life a lot better, but it's very tricky, and you can get hurt when you play with it. So Jesus says better that you don't have it. So is wealth bad? No, wealth is not bad. What's something else Jesus doesn't say? Jesus does not say to spread the wealth around equally. You sometimes hear people at the front of churches say that, and I disagree. Jesus is not saying, this is a dangerous thing, so I want to make sure the most possible number of people have it. That would not be a nice thing for Jesus to do. What Jesus says is, this is a dangerous thing, so you need to give it to people who will not amass it. They will blow it on food and shelter and clothing. So don't give it to people who will amass it, because the problem is, a rainy day fund can pretty soon become a rainy life fund. And if you have a rainy life fund, then you cannot receive eternal life from God as a gift. So Jesus says, Jesus says that the first option of obedience is very hard. And the disciples say, well then who can be saved? And Jesus says, well there's another option. With people, you're never gonna get there. But with God, all things are possible. He says there's two options. There's two deals on the table. You can pick whichever one you want. Perfect obedience to God, never once trusting in your own resources, or 
trusting in God instead. And he says, those are the two options you've got. So, what is Jesus telling us to do here? What is, what is the application? Well, one of the things that I, that I take comfort from as I read this, uh, Peter, who so often does this, Peter asks the question that's on a lot of our minds. Because the rich young man has walked away. He, for him, that was a deal breaker. Conversation was over when Jesus said, sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. But Peter, he says, well, okay, so if I sell everything I've got, then I get treasure in heaven. Okay. And then he goes, is that it? I love that Peter asks, is there more to this than just treasure in heaven? Because I think that's what a lot of us ask. It's like treasure in heaven's great, but it'd be nice to have some money right now. What do I get? What do I get? What do, what do I get in exchange, Jesus? Not later, but right now. And Jesus said, well, there are other things you get. And he says, he says, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, when Jesus talks about the end of time and the renewal of all things, and we hear judgment, we might think last judgment or, you know, who goes to hell, who goes to heaven. That's not what he's talking about here. In, in the Jew, Jewish religion, their tradition was that before there were kings, there were judges. There were people like the ones on TV, you know, the small claims court, you know, people who sort out tricky problems. So he's saying, you'll have administrative roles in the kingdom. You'll help people make better decisions in the kingdom. He says, you'll be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he says this, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold. Now, he's saying that as opposed to, or rather in addition to, inheriting eternal life, which he goes on to say. And uh, he says that, that that's clear in this passage, but it's explicitly clear in Mark's and Luke's account, where it says specifically, you'll receive these other things now and eternal life in the age to come. So he's saying there's two things. One is the present reward, and the other is the eternal reward. And he goes on to say many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So what do we do with this? Jesus has said that there are rewards now, and not just pie in the sky by and by. He's saying that there are rewards now. So what does that look like? Well, you know, the guy in the TV will tell you that if you give a, uh, if you send him ten dollars, then he'll send you back a hundred times as much in the mail next day. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And frankly, when Jesus says says um, that uh, you receive a mother or children or whatever, you know, this is Mother's Day, and I loved my mom, but I wouldn't want a hundred of her. Um, so Jesus is not saying you get a hundred times as much. Jesus is saying you will be rewarded. But it's not going to be a simple mathematical operation. It's going to be way more than you expected, way more than you left behind. But the details he leaves to our imagination. And I think that's the question we have to ask. We have to ask ourselves, are we trusting in our possessions? Are we saying that there are things that will make me happier or more secure? There are things I'm trusting in more than God. I mean, it's great to know that God takes care of the small things. But if an emergency came up, then it'd be nice to have some money in the bank. If if some real trouble happened, I'd sure want to have money. I'd sure want to have possessions. Because that's the challenge that Jesus is asking us to go through our kind of thinking, to, to kind of ask ourselves, is that really what we're thinking? Are there things in our lives where we're trusting in them rather than God for our happiness or our security? And I don't know what that looks like for you. 
Maybe for you it's it's a new car or maybe it's some improvements at the cabin or whatever it is that if I just had that, then my life would be better. Then I wouldn't need God. That's the that's the question that Jesus is asking us to invite. Maybe it's that 4K TV. Maybe it's that Apple Watch. Maybe it's that thing you're looking at and saying, if I only had that, then I'd be better off. I'd be happier. I'd be more secure if I had that one thing. And what Jesus is inviting us to do is to say, maybe I shouldn't. You know, one of the things I love about this story is when the rich young ruler shows up, he says, he says, what do I have to do? And Jesus says, sell everything. But then when he's talking to the disciples, maybe Jesus has looked at their faces and he's, he said, all right, if you have given up father or mother or children or homes or fields, he's saying, maybe, maybe it just doesn't work to tell people to give it up all at once. And so Jesus maybe is inviting us to say, what one thing can I give up and see if maybe I was trusting in that one thing and God paid me back a hundred times in this life and treasure in heaven. Maybe Jesus is inviting us to say, well, all right, I don't know about giving up my entire retirement fund. I don't know about that. But you know what? There's this one thing, and I admit it's kind of silly, and I don't really think it's going to help me out more than God will. So maybe that's the thing. Maybe I should give that to the poor and find out. You know, if it was the 4K TV, maybe you're going to find out what he means about leaving family because maybe your family will revolt. But maybe, instead, what you'll find out is what he means by the 100-fold, that anyone who gives these things up for my name's sake will receive a 100-fold and will inherit eternal life. The writer C.S. Lewis says, when you think all through the Scripture, there are these rewards, unblushing promises, he calls them, where God just flat out says, if you do it my way, I'll make it worth your while. He says, he says, when we consider how often God offers us these rewards, that you have to wonder if maybe God doesn't find our desires too strong, but really too weak. That we are half-hearted creatures. That we're like a child who wants to play in the mud puddle when he's offered a beach vacation because our imaginations are so small. So give it some thought. Maybe there's one thing that God is asking you to say, really, is that really what you're trusting in? And to give that to the poor and see whether or not he pays you a hundred times more plus laying up treasure in heaven. Let's pray. Loving God, Jesus asks us to do hard things, but he does so for a reason. He knows how much we trust in wealth, how little we trust in you. And so, Lord, we invite you to speak to our hearts. Help us to see the things that we have trusted in. And help us to have the strength to give them up so that we can trust in you. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.